Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One effect of having high house prices, because we're not building enough houses in London, Oxford, Cambridge, and so on, is that only very productive people, only people who can work for the highest salaries can afford to move there. So literally, people who are not as productive are left behind in these places. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the acting editor of CapEx. The subject of our latest CapEx Live podcast was a broad one. What is the future of capitalism? Recorded live at the Conservative Conference in Manchester, we brought together an expert panel to talk about the rise of platform capitalism, solving Britain's productivity crisis, and whether we should be scared of big tech. I was delighted to chair a panel including the RSA's Alan Lockie, digital policy expert Casey Callista, and Sam Bowman, the fellow at the Adam Smith Institute and self-declared inventor of neoliberalism. Everyone of our panellists is going to talk for sort of four to five minutes um, on this theme, which I've asked them to interpret as they see fit, and we're going to have a fairly wide-ranging discussion. We're going to pretty much keep it to the UK, because I think if we try and do the entire world economy in 45 minutes, we might be here, you know, might struggle a little bit. Uh, and then we're going to throw it open for a bit of a discussion before 15 minutes to the end of comments masquerading as questions from the floor. Uh, <laughs> I just. Um, so, without further ado, I will open it up to uh, Alan, who's going to start us off. Thank you, John. Um, I think there are perhaps two big trends in the future of capitalism, one of which is the rise of intangible investment, which I'm definitely going to uh, leave to Sam. And secondly, uh, is the future of work, which, so apologies if me and Casey cover the same terrain here, but I'm going to talk exclusively about that. Um, The central question, really, in the future of work is, does Uber and other platform business models represent the future of the firm? Now, I think there's uh, a degree of reasonable scepticism allowed on this. I think any business which is touted as the future of firm, which is losing approximately 9 billion US dollars a year, you do have to be a little bit sceptical about that. Um, And I also think if you think about what Uber does and where it really creates most of its value, which is intermediating the supply and demand of producers and consumers, there are definitely sort of economic questions about whether that can really replace uh, managed coordination as the primary source of innovation in a productive economy. That said, I do think we can say that platform models will grow and continue to grow from this point onwards, and I think that raises some very interesting questions about politics and policy. Um, At the RSA, we've developed four future scenarios uh, for the future of work, which are scenarios, they're not predictions, they're deliberately provocative. Uh, I won't go into them now, but perhaps the one which we have had most traction with when we talk to businesses, employers and people involved in technology is something we call the precision economy, which to uh, give it a kind of glib shorthand is, is, is surveillance capitalism. In, in this scenario, uh, one technology, things like robots don't necessarily uh, happen as fast as we might think. Driverless cars doesn't really happen at the pace we might expect. But one technology 
data capture technology, Internet of Things sensors grow very, very quick. You get wearable tech, you get very, very accurate data on individual productivity. And one of the outflows of this is that firms will be able to manage their, their, their supply of labour and the supply of production for their consumers with a degree of precision that we've not seen so far in capitalism. So we envisage in this scenario perhaps a lot of us working for platforms which then intermediate us to work on different projects and different tasks with six or seven firms at one time. So I think this will grow, but the politics of this are, are, are particularly interesting, particularly interesting, I think, for the right, for the right of, of the sort of old left-right divide, because I think there's an opportunity here for them. In that, if you go back to the old Adam Smith version of capitalism, Adam Smith, by the way, saw himself as a left-winger, but that's another story we don't need to go into here, but Adam Smith saw the free market as the path to, towards equality. And the reason he saw that is because most people were employed in what he called wage slavery. He saw self-employment as a kind of deliverer of people from servile dependency. Now, I think that's interesting because that is something that is really, really positive about firms like Uber. If you speak to taxi drivers they have often feel liberated from kind of very oppressive contracts which give them no flexibility and agency in the minicab industry. Most of them are not generally come from the kind of more protectionist uh, black cab system. So there is a, there's an opportunity in this radical flexibility and the left are completely... They, they can only focus on the lack of security that such, such models uh, provide and they're completely in resistance mode. So I, I think if the, the right leans into platform capitalism, there is a way to think about giving radical flexibility and control over individual, and I do mean individual rather than firms, production in a way that hasn't really been possible since the 18th century. So there's an Adam Smith vision there. The key question that comes with that is how do you then reform what uh, the thinker Letitia Vital calls the bundle. So she has this wonderful phrase where 20th century work is seen as kind of wage slavery, but you get uh, a bundle of goods, security, uh, health insurance, income protection, sickness pay, that come with employment. I think the right's challenge is to look at how this bundle can be retooled, and companies like Uber are already looking at this, in a way that is consistent with the radical flexibility that such models uh, provide. Uh, thanks very much. Um, Casey, you'd like to talk a bit more about uh, the sort of tech side of things? And you'll have to excuse my voice is slightly more sultry than it normally is. I've caught the dreaded conference cold. So bear with me a little bit if my brain works a bit slower as well. Um, I've obviously interpreted this question uh, in the way, how will tech change the UK economy? And obviously we're talking about everything from AI and automation to algorithms. So um, Alan mentioned four scenarios, but I think those can be boiled down really simplistically into two big ones that everyone always highlights. And that's huge job losses um, with both blue-collar and white-collar professions um, and potentially less uh, jobs, but a few that are better paying. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two, um, people who are more positive about the future, we'll talk about how tech can help us solve some of the biggest challenges that our society is currently facing, particularly the productivity challenge as well as low wages and slow growth. So the important thing to remember is that we're living in an increasingly connected and competitive world. So I want to concentrate on how we can make sure that our future is more of the second scenario than the first one, because obviously it's going to be a little bit of both, most likely. So I think that if we're putting in place the right policy framework, we can help guide the economy towards that second scenario, the, the positive, bright, shining future. Um, so and I want to really um, identify that there's a huge difference. I'm clearly an American, as you can probably tell from my accent. I originally come from Pennsylvania. And there was a really interesting program that got a lot of coverage at the time. It's been actually on lots of podcasts covered on NPR about how they were taking former miners and teaching them coding skills so they could become coders. That's great for a few people. But sooner or later, those same coding skills they're learning will also not help them with the future world of work because those will go out of date as well quite quickly. So what I really want to highlight here is what we're not talking about is tinkering around the edges or helping a couple people out who are out of work. We really need to be talking about huge transformative change to our society and our entire economy. 
So how do we get that best future? We need to have a smart strategy. And part of that in our increasingly competitive world will be to strategize. So first of all, we have to recognize that tech is the future. And unfortunately, some people are still a bit behind on that. Um, so we have to make sure that tech is based here, like from everywhere, from startup to scale up. And uh, the last Tech Nation report reported that the UK is fourth in scale up investment. So we are already starting from a really good base. Um, but we also should drive more innovation. Um, we need to invest more in R&D. And we need to make sure that we're really fast adapters of new technology. That will help us out. A second key part, part of that is how we attract and develop talent. So that's going to be everything from the immigration system um, to in-work training, um, the education system, and maybe potentially overhauling that, and also making sure that we're using all of the talent here. So beyond in-work training, you know, we do need more diversity in tech that will be good for the economy and tech companies as well. Uh, and the UK does already specialize pretty well in a lot of things. We need to do that even more. Um, so fintech is a huge specialization that we're doing really well in globally. Um, and we need to be creative about how we're working with tech in other sectors, and particularly with our like world-leading higher education sector. So it's really important to think about how we need to adapt faster and train people faster. Another, the final specialization from the UK that I want to highlight is that we're really good at high standards and one of those that we're leading in is tech ethics. So the online harms white paper, I might disagree with some of the specifics in it, but it's a really good example of a country that we really are leading and starting to think about this stuff and talking about how we might go ahead and codify it. We, there's a couple questions we need to ask ourselves when we're thinking about how we're going to start to create this future economy. And one is, who creates tech? Only 18% of UK tech roles are filled by women, currently. That's horrific. You know, when we're talking about an economy that engages everyone and that does, can actually work and plan for working for everyone, we need to take diversity in the sector into account. The second one is, what do we value as a society? I mean, think about if we're automating skills, what are the skills that aren't going to be automated in the future? And that's things like social care. You know, those personable skills that we do undervalue as a society that aren't paid very well. We really need to have a cultural shift and think about that. Um, I'm going to come on to one of the points that Alan made, uh, and that's about when we're talking about um, what people expect from flexible working, and I see it more as a generational shift. Um, that tech enables greater choice. It enables us to see what other jobs are out there, apply for new jobs more easily, and it also allows people to work from anywhere. So I'm talking to young people in the tech sector. Half of them want to go off for half the year and live in Bali because they can work from their laptops as long as they have a good Wi-Fi connection. And that's something we really need to understand because I've worked with a lot of companies who are struggling to benefit from both young and diverse talent. And so I'm calling on companies to really step up. And if we are going to attract that talent and keep it here, we need to think about what is the social mission that a company has? What is the flexible working offer? What about shared parental leave, the gender pay gap, and having a good work culture? And that's not the platform model that gets criticized now about having no sick pay. That's having further benefits and really driving a social mission and contributing to the good for the world. That's what young people do want to see in a lot of the conversations that I'm having. The final thing that I want to highlight is uh, something that everyone knows, and that's that we can never forget that the pace of change is increasing. So there are two things that the UK really needs to think about doing right now. And number one is we need to articulate the future world that we're trying to create. And I'm hoping that's going to be an economy that everyone is engaged in and benefiting from, and that we're talking about how we're solving the big problems that we're facing, you know, potentially climate change. Tech is a huge opportunity. The internet particularly can allow us to have another go at creating a new world that doesn't have the same oppressions and disadvantages that we currently see reflected in society now. Um, and the second thing that you, you, I'd like to see the UK do is, uh, particularly the government, is really drive towards that vision that we do all agree and then end up articulating. So I'm, I'm in favor of smart regulation and policy. Um, and it's important to notice that tech is faster than legislation. So the thing that I'm the most interested in watching in the future is how CivTech develops. Thank you very much, Casey. Um, right, and just before Sam starts, I should add that he and uh, Stephen Westlake have written a very good paper called Reviving Economic Thinking 
on the right, which I strongly recommend everyone to read. And I think some of his remarks will pick up on some of the stuff that's in that paper uh, as well. So. Oh, thanks very much. Um, thank you, everybody, for getting out of bed and coming to listen to hear me speak. Um, I adore CapEx. It's um, one of my first reads every morning. And uh, if you don't already read it regularly and subscribe to their newsletter, I highly recommend that you do because it's excellent. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because occasionally they publish me. Um, what I want to talk about today is intangible investment and what that means both for the broad economy and for places like Wigan and for left-behind towns that um, I think the rightly the Conservative Party is paying a lot more attention to than it once did. Um, intangible investment is investment in things like research and development, software, design. It's things that you can't physically touch. Um, Harry Potter, the, uh, the IP, the intellectual property of Harry Potter is intangible investment. A factory that makes smartphones is mostly tangible investment. The design of the smartphone is intangible investment. Now, what we've witnessed in the last decade is intangible investment overtaking in the developed world in uh, tangible investment. So intangible investment is now a bigger part of the story for the English-speaking world in particular than physical investment. And that has a few interesting consequences. One, along with the shift towards software, is that markets are much more winner-take-all. Instead of markets where having, say, a 15 or 20% market share means that you're doing really well, we now see in software in particular, like Google for search engines or Uber for taxis, um, the market leader tends to take something like an 80 or 90% market share. Because if you're a consumer, why wouldn't you use the one that you thought was best? Why wouldn't everybody use the one that's best? The normal caps on size, the normal diseconomies of scale, the things that stop a successful tangible business from becoming the most successful business and destroying all of its rivals don't usually apply to software because serving one extra customer really makes no difference to them. And what that means is that we should expect to see more superstar firms <clears throat> as the economy becomes more and more intangible and as the economy becomes more and more software based, we should expect to see more gigantic firms that at any point in time are the dominant leaders in their market. Now that's not to say that they cannot be competed with. That's not to say that if I come up with a better search engine than Google that I won't be able to get better customers and become the new Google. But it is to say that at any point in time we should expect to see these giants. And one thing that means is that pay inequality between firms has become much more important than pay inequality within firms. Even though um, the emphasis is often on CEO pay and how much chief executives earn compared to the poorest person in, or the least well-paid person in their company, pay inequality is actually much more driven by differences between different companies. If you work for Google, for example, you'll probably earn quite a lot more money than if you work for I don't know, DuckDuckGo. No offense to anybody who works for DuckDuckGo or uses DuckDuckGo in the audience. So what that means is that pay inequality is often uh, misunderstood. It's not necessarily being driven by inequalities um, between different skill sets within firms. It's not that firms are rewarding certain people within and not rewarding certain people with, um, within. It's that firms that are successful can attract the greatest talent and bring those people in and pay them almost as much as they want. And chief executive pay... Um, is also in, uh, highly tied up with, intangible, with the intangible economy. Because if you make the right calls, and if you get the, the big calls right, then that can make the difference between being the Google or being, say, the Bing of the search engine market. The next effect of intangibles is that they have high spillovers. Being around other intangible companies is very, very valuable. Being physically close to them can actually be useful. Look at the technology-based clusters in places like Oxford and Cambridge. They're very, very, they prize being near the universities and they prize being near each other because they can learn from each other and they can attract the workers for the companies and learn from each other in that way. And there are also synergies from workers being able to um, learn from each other and switch between jobs and so on. And what that means is that agglomeration economies, um, agglomeration really is just an economics -y word for being near each other makes you richer. People being close to each other makes you richer. And in a world where we're focused more on ideas than we are on physical things, being near each other is even more important than it's ever been. And this is why the English-speaking world has seen cities um, almost all, uh, almost all English-speaking countries, in fact all English-speaking countries, have at least one city with a housing crisis. And there are very interesting questions as to why the supply of housing has not been allowed to rise in these places. But it's also interesting to think about why the demand for housing has increased so much in these English-speaking countries in a way that, for example, it hasn't in Germany. 
Germany has lots of successful cities that tend to be associated with manufacturing and so on in uh, the kind of suburban and outlying regions. Whereas in the UK, we have one gigantic engine of growth, which is London. Canada has Vancouver and uh, Toronto. The US has, of course, the San Jose, San Francisco area and New York and so on. All of this is being driven by the fact that it's more valuable to be near each other than it ever has been. From a policy point of view, what should we do about that? Well, one thing to do is to make it easier for people to move to those places. One effect of having high house prices, because we're not building enough houses in London, Oxford, Cambridge, and so on, is that only very productive people, only people who can work for the highest salaries can afford to move there. So literally, people who are not as productive are left behind in these places. As sad as it is for uh, a town to become depopulated, it's even more sad when only people who have a bright career prospect can leave that town and people who do not have bright career prospects are left behind. Those places are literally left behind and it's one effect that's underappreciated about the housing market in the UK and the housing crisis in the UK. By making only very productive people able to move to places like London, we're exacerbating regional inequality in a way that few people appreciate. But the second thing that we can do is, is try to bring the agglomeration benefits to these left-behind places. Wigan um, is just as far from Manchester as Esher is from London, but it's about 50% uh, more time-consuming to get from Wigan to Manchester because of poorer transport links, the roads perhaps aren't as wide, and so on. If we could make it easier for people in these outlying towns to get to the engines of growth in their areas then we could bring more agglomeration benefits to places that are currently deprived. I think there's a huge debate going on in the Conservative Party about how you help towns and how you can revive places that have been left behind, quite rightly. But the debate is between people who think that you can help these towns kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and sort of revive the economies of the 1970s or even the 19th century um, and, and sort of become engines of growth themselves. I think that's a mistake. I think we have to acknowledge that growth will come from agglomeration. Growth will come from being around people. And the engines of growth that do exist in the UK are cities. So if we want to help left-behind towns, and if we want to take advantage of the intangible economy, we have to let those towns plug in to the places that are growing. And we have to make a much more um, serious focus, I think, on things like bus routes, um, bus lanes. Bus priority is an incredibly important thing if you are trying to get public transport from a town like Wigan, which is about 15 miles from here, into a place like Manchester, which is growing quite well, thanks to the intangible economy. So there are quite mundane things we can do. Build more houses, think more seriously about how we do transport infrastructure, think about road pricing, and think about how we actually um, lay out the road network and, and the, the kind of price signals that we're, that we're not sending at the moment um, that mean that public transport can't really compete effectively against cars. All of these things are quite boring, quite mundane, politically unsexy, but the results might be politically powerful. If we can revitalize left-behind towns by plugging them into engines of growth, I think that's a very winning message for the Conservative Party, and it's something that would be good for the country as a whole and would work with the grain of economic progress instead of against it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. I think loads of really interesting points uh, there. Um, Alan, did you want to pick up on the one about towns and cities and how we power growth in left-behind areas? Yeah, but only to, to, to really add a, 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 what I think is a kind of council of despair, really, because I kind of, you know, I think Sam and Stian's paper is excellent. I recommend it to everyone, particularly if you're interested in, uh, you know, the in economics of the centre-right. Um, but I, it reminds me very much of the kind of speeches Tony Blair used to give in the mid-noughties about how, you know, everyone needs to, 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 to get on and we're going to upskill the population and everyone's going to be you know, move to the cities, and it's, you know, it, it, it's a case that's very often made by people who have been on a personal, and it's my story too, a personal and social mobility journey of moving from places into these successful cities. And if I look at some of my relatives in Dudley, you know, they're not even moving to Birmingham. They, they know there are better jobs in Birmingham, and they're still <coughs> not moving four miles down the road. They're still not wanting to work four miles down the road because there is a kind of you know, an attachment, uh, a, a desire to be part of the community where they grew up. And I think that's a very conservative position. But, and, and, and I completely hold open the, the possibility that, you're, that you kind of trickle out economics are all we have. 
But I rather suspect if we don't find something else, we'll see a, a, a continuing fragmentation and political uh, uproar from, from those sort of places. I'll come in in defense of uh, Sam on this one, because from the tech sector perspective, what everyone talks about is if you want to start up uh, a new business and then scale it up, what you need ultimately are connections. And you can't get that anywhere but London. And actually, then most successful people eventually move to Silicon Valley as well, um, because it's all about meeting your investors, the people who are going to fund you, meeting mentors, um, being able to attract that ta talent. And that's, that's actually only in London. And that's unfortunate, because I would love to live in a smaller place that had you know, better nature like where I came from, but unfortunately there are no jobs there. So I think that sort of boring stuff and talking about transport and housing and maybe letting people commute in uh, even easier is really interesting and maybe that I'd like to see that offered more as part of the solution instead of trying to find this mythical tech, we'll just do more Skype and video conferencing, which actually never really works because when you're going to fund a business, when you're going to talk to someone about getting involved or meet your next um, investor, your next partner in something. You really do need to do that face-to-face, -face. and it's very old school, but that is still really, really important no matter what business you're starting. No, I, 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 to, to be clear, I do completely agree, and I think that this could very well be the best policy options <clears throat> available, but I think you look at, Sam talked about Germany, you look at Germany, they, I mean, you know, maybe they're in a slightly better place in terms of this divide between the left-behinds and, 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 and a, and a hyper- dominant city like London than we are, but they've still got the same sort of political, cultural uproar. They st you know, the macroeconomics are so powerful that if this is the best policy option uh, that we have, I, I see continued, uh, continued sort of disenchantment and many of the issues that we've seen over the last five years. Sure. Um I think that the underlying point uh, that Alan's making, and uh, you kind of refer to the macroeconomic um, environment, I mean, the fact is that productivity in this country has basically not grown at all in the last 10 years. We've seen 0.3% growth in productivity in 10 years. It's not 0.3% a year, 0.3% in 10 years. It's basically stood still. We're in the same position as Italy. Every other G7 country has had significant productivity growth over this period. Not as strong as it ever, as, as, as it used to be, Certainly, but nothing like the kind of stagnation that we've had in the UK. I think there's something deeply wrong with that, and I think that if the Conservative Party is not asking itself why, given that it has been in power for almost all of this period, why this has, this has been the case, then the Conservative Party really doesn't serve a purpose anymore. Now, I, I think it does yeah. serve a purpose, and it should be serving a purpose, and it has to look at what are the economic trends globally that are driving growth and driving productivity increases. Apart from housing and apart from making it easier for people to move around and so on, the areas where the, the kind of lowest hanging fruit in terms of progress, economic progress, are areas that are very labor intensive and particularly labor intensive on skilled people. So healthcare, for example, education, things where currently we use a lot of very highly skilled people to do, to do work. Their costs rise as our incomes rise in other areas. This is called the Beaumont's cost disease or the Beaumont effect. If we can somehow find ways to automate these things or to deregulate them so that it's easier for new entrants to come in and compete with the um, incumbent, highly skilled people who do not want to be competed with by technology, then we might be able to drive growth quite significantly. I agree that bus routes aren't going to solve every problem. I think that they will allow more places to hitch their wagons to the growth that is taking place. But there's a lot more that the Conservative Party should be doing to think about how we have the overarching macroeconomic environment growing more strongly as well. Did you want to come back on that? Um, Alan, yeah. do you want to come back? Yeah, I just, uh, I just, I just, I just, yeah. Again, more despair, really, for me, which, which I will try and break out of at some point. But you know, I've been on panels for the last sort of three to four years, talking quite a lot about the UK's productivity challenge, and it, it, it is absolutely true that if you look at us compared to compared to the countries like Germany and France, there are a lot of things we could do. There are a lot of solutions that Sam has sketched out that I agree with. What? there are not as many panels on because fewer people have the answers is why productivity everywhere has stalled relative to where it was before the, cr uh, the crash uh, and actually in the long run stalled, stalled more substantially so how we answer you know, it's, we can all learn from a lot of uh, comparative analysis of what other countries do better than us but what do those countries that do better than us do to improve their productivity because there aren't a lot of answers to that question at the moment
Um, do you think, guys, there's a problem in the way that we frame this idea? When we talk about the future of capitalism, often people think of it, everyone's going to be you know, served by robots doing everything, everything's going to be automated and machines are going to you know, take all these jobs. But actually, a lot of the solutions and stuff that Sam talked about there, um, for example, buses, if you improve the buses in Birmingham, some, as a study's been done, you'd increase the GDP of the city by 7%. I mean, it's extraordinary. When we're looking at national growth of sort of in the low single digits, that seems to me to be a, a sort of relatively simple win. I mean, what do you think about the way that the, the debate is generally framed, particularly by us in the media? I think that that's the right way to look at the question of growth. Um, it's, I think it's, very inter- it's a very interesting question as to why growth ever happens. Why do we ever uh, become richer? And, I mean, previous, prior to the Industrial Revolution, we didn't. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, basically living standards were the same in 1750 as they were in 0 AD and, and 500 BC. So the Industrial Revolution is a very, very recent phenomenon, and the 2% annual growth that we've had since then is a very unusual thing, and it's kind of responsible for the amazing world that we live in now. But every year, all that is is people thinking of slightly better ways of doing what, we, what we've been doing already and occasionally coming up with an amazing breakthrough. Every year, all those people are not, they're not... It's not a continuous trend. That kind of innovation is not a continuous trend for the people who are actually innovating. They're, they're working in stops and starts. They're occasionally having a great insight. They're occasionally coming up with the idea of standardising coffee cup. The, you know, the, the, the way that coffee cup um, sizes used to come in different gauges. So the lids were different widths. Incredibly mundane thing to realise that actually we can save a little bit of time by standardising the gauge of the coffee cup width. So it doesn't matter how deep the coffee cup is, we use the same lid. Now, this is a completely mundane, um, even more mundane than bus lanes in Wigan, but this is the, the sort of thing that creates 2% extra productivity growth for Starbucks. And that kind of insight across the entire economy creates 2% growth for the entire economy. So these kind of stops and starts, these really trivial and mundane kinds of innovations are a thing that really, uh, the things that have created the world that we live in. I think it's a very interesting question as to why these sorts of things were slowed down. Partly, I think, in the UK, it's because we have a tax system that's very anti-investment. And um, in the UK, we do underinvest compared to the other uh, G7 countries. And there are, there are some things we can do the tax code to change that. Um, but partly, it's because we've, we've scored a lot of easy wins, and we're waiting for new breakthroughs, and, we're, and we're, we've kind of made TVs as cheap as we're going to make TVs. Uh, there, there, there aren't that many more innovations we can do to make TVs cheaper. But there are a lot of things we can do to make healthcare cheaper, education cheaper, mobility cheaper and easier. Um, we're just not doing them. And often, often, regulation and incumbents stopping new innovations from competing with them is the problem. And those are the sorts of things we should be thinking about to drive productivity growth. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, I want to come back to later to the issue of monopolies, which I think is one of the biggest challenges, not just here, but especially in America <coughs> at the moment. But um, Casey, you're working with the tech sector. I mean, how... How whizzy and exciting is it, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I, well, first, I feel duty-bound to be the person that points out we're talking about growth and productivity, in it, like always going up and up and up. Is that even possible? 
I mean, and also, even if it was, which I don't think it is, forever and ever, um, what type of society are we creating? What types of jobs are we creating? Like, that is really important. What kind of life do we want to live? And how are we balancing growth and how much money we're making and how productive we are as a society with the types of lives that we live? You know, I mean, maybe that can come back to Alan's point a bit. Where do people want to live? Do they want to have a sense of community? And these are really important questions that when we're talking about that vision that we want to create, that I don't think someone is really articulating well for the future, but it needs to take that into context as well as the economy and that's equally as important happiness the happiness index um i'll be the hippie on the panel if i have to um so with is the tech sector that whizzy and exciting is that what the question was how i mean the way it's sort of talked about sometimes in the media and there's a like you said there's two scenarios there's the kind of zero marginal cost society where we're all going to end up not having to even pay for anything which sort of segues weirdly into the aaron bastani luxury communism uh, thing Uh, and then the sort of james i think james cameron has more responsibility for tech doom mongering than anyone because of the terminator films but um that idea that we're all going to somehow be like enslaved by machines and no one's gonna have any jobs yeah yeah. no i think something that's that's really interesting that people are talking about more and more when we're talking about um like culture and the right versus left politics is that when tech first started up and it might not be exactly answering your question but I find it really interesting when we're talking about you know fully automated luxury communism and what's going back and forth when tech first started up it was seen as you know it is a bit wild west but it was supposed to be all these liberal guys and they were mostly guys um, out in California who are who are doing these cool things and they're you know they're innovating but it's going to be a bright progressive future and now that everyone has a lot of money and has all these monopolies what are they doing? They're they're fighting against regulation. They don't want to give up any power and control. And I think there's really, really hard questions to be asked here when we're talking about who does have control anymore because when we're fighting against someone that is an international company that we can't even manage to tax in the way that we want to because then they'll just base themselves somewhere else, you know, and they're creating the lives that we're living online increasingly. Who does have the power? Is it our policymakers, or is it these people who are running tech companies? And are they, is what they're doing progressive? Is it conservative? Does that even matter? I mean, it, this has profound implications for democracy and for our future economy. And who gets to have you know decision-making power in it? Um, yeah, I think that's something that kind of unites actually left and right is a bit of unease at the yeah. power and. Not necessarily just extra regulation. If, and if anything, some of these large companies lobby for more regulation because to create the Warren Buffett's moats around them so no one else can come in. Um, Alan, you want to come back? And- yeah, I just wanted to sort of reflect on the question about how whiz-bang is tech. It kind of feels like we're on the cusp of a breakthrough. You know, I think artificial intelligence could be a really transformative uh, technology. I talked a little bit about the levels of precision that... That, 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 that firms are developing into how to manage their supply of labour but also of consumer services. We were speaking to a firm, a logistics firm recently, who was suggesting that they're not very far away from being able to deliver your package to the minute rather than give you a kind of full-day time window. I mean, we'll see. What I would say is it feels like we've been on a bit of a cusp uh, of where com- you know, information technology and, and uh, ancillary innovations from that you know, we've been talking about when's it going to show up in productivity, when's it going to show up in the labour market for a very, very long time. And to this point, San Francisco has not created anything as labour-displacing as the washing machine. So, <laughs> depending on which day uh, the week it is, I sometimes feel like, yes, we're on the cusp of a massive breakthrough, in, 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 and, and this is a generally transformative uh, period where capitalism is shifting. And in other times I think, well, actually, no, it's all oversold. Um, Sam, do you want to come back on this on the question of perpetual growth in the economy? Well, yeah, I bri- uh, briefly. I also want to talk about monopolies, if that's okay. But um, or maybe I'm pre. Maybe you want to go no, into no, another no, question. Briefly, um, I think the people who th- who talk about perpetual growth. Um, I think have a very different idea of what growth is to the way I think about growth. They think about growth as kind of discovering new resources or exploiting kind of oil resources more. Now, if we discover a gigantic amount of oil under Manchester, that's a one-off increase in growth. We are richer, but we don't, we, the, the growth rate only spikes for one year. 
growth, as I've described it earlier, is constantly getting slightly better at using the things that we've already got. And there's no, there's no inherent reason that we can't con- continue to get better and better at using what we've got. And we should think about that. If we, if we use that frame of, of innovation, really, is for a given amount of resources, how are we using them and how well are we... Are, how, how, how much are we producing with these resources or how, how well are we using these resources? Really, we should be thinking about growth as a very environmentally friendly thing. It allows us to become much more efficient with the resources that we've got and allows us to um, kind of optimize for a given set of resources. So I, I'm, I'm not really, I find the kind of perpetual growth um, thing kind of slightly weird because it, it really clashes with the way I understand growth. On, on monopolies, um, it's, it's obviously indisputable that Google has an unbelievably huge share of the search market. Um, Facebook products have a very large share. You know, that includes uh, Instagram, for example, and WhatsApp of the way people communicate with each other online. I think the important question and the word that I would really like to stress is contestability. Are these markets contestable? If, if somebody came up with a much better search engine than Google, maybe not slightly better because it's slightly inconvenient to move from one search engine to another if you're used to using Google. But if somebody came up with a much better search engine, would, it, would they be able to contest Google's dominance of the market? Would people be able to switch? Now, I think in a search engine, certainly. I think it's very clear that I would be able to, and I'm, I'm very tech-savvy. Maybe if, if, if somebody is less tech-savvy, then they might not want to. They might, there might be kind of inertia there. But people who want to use the best search engine could very easily switch to about what they consider to be a better search engine. And people do. You know, people who like privacy can use DuckDuckGo if they want to. There's really nothing stopping them from doing that. So if the market is contestable, it doesn't matter that much to me if the market is dominated at one point in time by a, a single firm. That just tells me that that's the firm that everybody thinks is best or most people think is best. As long as a better one coming along can compete with it, then I think the market is healthy. Even in social networks, social networks are the kind of interesting edge case because unlike something like e-commerce or search engines, social networks have a network effect. You want to be on the social network that your friends are on. So if everybody is on one social network, it can be difficult for you to be the first person to move over to another social network. But I think what's really interesting is that we do see new social networks coming in and competing with incumbent social networks. And it seems to be kind of generationally related. So I don't know if many people here use the the social network TikTok. Um, I can't really figure it out. Sadly, I'm finally at an age where there's a new social network that I can't really get my head around. I was just about able to figure out Snapchat, but can't figure out TikTok at all. It's interesting to me that TikTok is much, much more relevant and interesting to people who are under the age of 20 than Facebook is. Many of those people do not have Facebook profiles. They they may have Instagram profiles, to be fair, but they don't have Facebook profiles. And the, the, the point about the network effect should tell us that these people would be kind of bound in forever by Facebook. And they, because everybody is on Facebook, you have to go to Facebook. So there does seem to be a kind of generational shift that, okay, maybe, maybe everybody my age is on Instagram or Facebook, but seemingly people of Generation Z aren't on these things. And so there does seem, even in the, in the hardest case, where the network uh, we, would, we might imagine would keep everybody stuck to an incumbent, even then it doesn't seem like that's the case. And even social networks seem to be contestable. And in other markets, like, like e-commerce and, and search engines and so on, I think it's indisputable that they're contestable. So I'm reasonably relaxed about um, companies that are very large being there because they can be competed with and they are being competed with. Okay, thanks very much, Sam. Um, we now have about 20 odd minutes for questions. I'm going to take them in pairs, so if you could just raise your hand. Um, there's a chap at the back there who's um, been putting his hand up for a while. Hi, my name... Is that on? Um, my name's Rob. Um, I don't think you could be more wrong about the contestability of, um, of these tech companies. Um, the network effects are such that um, you are always... Um, disincentivized from being able to compete and their behavior is such that as soon as any possible competitor comes up um, they will use their um, power be it capital be it it, um, financial or whatever they'll just buy you out or something like that and you can see that in their behavior Um, you can see their dominance in um, regulatory regimes when um, Facebook bought um, WhatsApp, that was clear that the fine um, levied against them by the EU was they treated it like, they treated that breaking of the law as if it were just an insurance policy. Um, 
I think it's the biggest worry for capitalism um, going, going forward is the monopolistic power of, of, of these companies with their network effects. Um, and I don't think you're taking it very seriously. Um, can I just stress, uh, can we try and keep questions to within sort of 20 seconds? Because loads of people have got their hands up. Um, um, one more uh, gentleman in front of me here. Thanks. I, my question is very simple. Is yeah. actually part of this uh, productivity um, slowdown because we're not actually measuring it accurately? Because it seems to me, you know, when I was a kid, I had about three pounds a month to spend on records and I could get one record and the availability in the local store was maybe 300 records. Now my son, for three pounds a month, or the equivalent thereof, in fact a lot less than the equivalent thereof, gets millions of records access. And I don't think we capture that. It's because we're not measuring it. And because we're getting so rich, we're actually going to go backwards. So instead of going Nescafe, we go to Barista. And again, I don't think we can. That's incredibly labour-intensive. And it sounds like we're going backwards in productivity, but actually that's progress. Okay, so uh, first was, you know, our tech monopoly is the biggest threat to capitalism. Um, I'm just coming in. I think there's a, there is an issue maybe that Sam can pick up on in that some of these big companies are buying the actual physical infrastructure of the internet, like Google actually buying the cables and stuff like that in a way that is worrying if you like, if you favour competition and free markets. And then and there's another issue of regulatory capture that maybe someone can come in. And then the second question, are we measuring productivity uh, properly? Um, I think there's quite a few people who argue that we're not because of the kind of intangible things that some of the panellists have discussed. Um, so, Sam, do you want to kick off and rejoin us? I, I absolutely agree with your point about measurement. I think it's a really, really well, well taken point and very, very well made point. Um, there are a few attempts to measure product, uh, this kind of productivity increase. So there's an economist called, uh, and I'm really sorry because I can't pronounce his name. If you saw it written down, you would sympathise with me. Uh, it's something like Eric Brynjolfsson or something. That, it's a very, very difficult na- name to pronounce. And what he does is ask people, what would you be willing to give up, give up uh, to continue having access to whatever, Facebook, WhatsApp, Spotify. Um, and often people are willing to give up like incredible things. You know, People are willing to give up shelter uh, in order to continue access to Spotify. People are willing to give up a kidney to make sure they still have access to, uh, to, uh, to podcasts and things like that. Um, and, and certainly he, he reckons that we have definitely missed uh, certainly a few percentage points of growth over the last 15 years because we're not really capturing free services like that. And as you say, the, the quality increase in a cup of coffee, I mean, come on, it's just immeasurable. Um, the fact that you can make a little, put a little pod in, in your home and, and have a reasonably good... Uh, whatever, espresso, instead of Nescafe, which I grew up with and hate, uh, I agree, is, is astonishingly important. Um, it's obviously, I, I, I hope I kind of gave the other side of the, I, I of course take your point about um, technology monopolies, and I, and I think I'm, I'm certainly on the kind of less popular side here, um, and I hope I gave my, my side a reasonable um, kind of outline. On the point about buyouts, um, it's very important to, re- to recognize that when you start a tech company, you want a way out as well. Most tech companies do not start out uh, with people guaranteeing that either we're going to become Mark Zuckerberg or we're going to be bust, right? Most tech companies sort of think, okay, I'd be quite happy with 10 million, 50 million, 100 million. And the only way you can get that often um, is by being bought out, right? Many tech companies are started with the express intention or the express desire to be bought out. So we have to remember that there's a, specific, there's, a, there's a very positive incentive that can come from buyouts to lead more people to start tech companies. And every so often, they will turn into really important companies. And they will turn out to be the extremely valuable, um, kind of the next Google-type companies that, that we want to see, the, the next TikTok, say. Um, a kind of final point about uh, regulatory capture. Um, I find it very, very difficult to believe that there's any regulatory capture by tech at the moment. Um, there isn't, for, for one, a regulator of tech. Um, no, no Western country has a tech regulator yet, uh, although I think we're very soon going to get one, and then we might start to see regulatory capture. And I find it kind of slightly perverse to think about tech um, capturing regulation when we have off-gem, off-com, off-what, when we have, when we have very well-established regulators, all of which have an extremely close relationship to their incumbent firms, and all of which are, are regulating extremely unproductive and uncompetitive industries. I think it's astonishing to think about regulatory capture and not think, what the hell are we doing with the energy market, the telecoms market, in particular the telecoms market, because it's so important for tech, um, with these gigantic regulators that often have a kind of revolving door employment 
policy, where you are hired from these firms, and then you go into nice jobs in these firms. Um, and really, we treat these, these, these regulators as almost black boxes. They're given responsibility for competition powers in these sectors, which I think is outrageous, because they have a, an explicit in, incentive to be cosy and to be kind to their, in, to their managed industries. So much less, I'm much less worried about regulatory capture by tech because we don't yet have a tech regulator. I'm much more worried, and when it comes to tech, about lack of competition in the telecoms market, particularly in the fixed-line telecoms market. I would love to see OpenReach split away from VT and broken up into lots of regional companies that can then compete with each other in each other's regions. That's the sort of thing that I'm talking about when I say there are regulations that are blocking competition, and, uh, and that's the sort of thing I'm talking about when I worry about regulatory capture, not captured by big tech. I, it's just not a thing. Um, when we're talking about the sort of Spotify point that was made, um, and another thing that Sam mentioned in his first speech, where I think it's going to be really important for the UK how we protect the creative industries, because we do have a particular specialization in that. And if it's so freely available and you can take data from anywhere, how are we going to make sure that we are able to keep those resources and continuously develop content? That's going to be really, really important for our future. And we're talking about monopolies. I think more than just the physical infrastructure, another point uh, is that huge companies, by buying up all of these other companies, are creating data profiles of all of us. And you know, not to be the person that thinks that Skynet is going to come into existence, but I think that is a worry that I do have, a concern. Who ha owns all of our data? Do we even know? Can we control it? Can we see, you know, who has what? And have we actually given it all of the access that we should have? Um, and I don't think all of those things are there yet, and it is something that I do worry about. And there's another point on top of that when we're talking about big tech, and that's the point that I tried to get at when I was questioning who is creating this. And the fact is that they're only solve a lot of tech companies are only solving problems for the people who are creating it. So now in London, I could go on an app and get them to come and pick up my laundry and do it. But there is no app to help me feel safer as I'm walking home at night as a woman living in a city. That's a huge problem. You know, tech is not solving the problems of anyone. It's not solving societal challenges of the whole world or nor of everyone living in society. And I think that that's something that we're really going to have to look at and to make sure that we're capturing when we're talking about creating an economy that will work for everyone. And Alan, you want to come in? Yeah, very quickly. I think the gentleman's question on productivity is very interesting. I mean... Yes, it is a part of a part of the problem, but no, it's not the whole problem. But I think something you, the way you sketched out productivity is very interesting uh, because what a lot of and would actually solve the productivity challenge to a certain extent if a lot of firms thought a bit more like you. But a lot of firms actually measure process efficiency and think they're measuring productivity, and so don't take account of the quality of service they provide. And actually, if they did that, then we might see productivity rise a bit, a bit more. With the contestability issue, I think the political issue of pithily is that the big tech companies have got sort of to the position that the banks have got to in that they are too central to the democratic and social fabric of a productive economy to fail. And so that probably requires a different regulatory regime than it does to a standard business. Okay, we've got time for a couple more. Um, gentleman right in front of me here. And a uh, gentleman in the aisle, just with his hand up by Caroline there as well, please. So one yeah. Should I go first? Yeah. Hi there. Uh, just going back on Casey's speech, uh, as a young person who's now looking to uh, the next career move, uh, either back and back, having had experience in banking in the public sector, um, my kind of question is, with the kind of requirements banks are asking for and public sector, all these programs and these technological terms, I feel like school hasn't prepared my generation to learn these programs and to learn the kind of, you know, different ways we can use computers at the best advantage. And my kind of question is, can the government do more to prepare young people or do we accept the fact that some people will be left, behind, left behind with these new requirements that uh, companies are asking for? Okay, thank you. And this gentleman here. Uh, thank you. My name's Martin Fordham. I'm a technology entrepreneur from Cambridge um, and there's a, so many things I want to come back on but I'll stick to one that is um, I've got two businesses but we're not in Cambridge we're in next to a carrot field with one of them next to a pig farm with the other it's allowed our technology businesses to invest because the costs are so much lower commuting so much easier environment so much better than being in Cambridge 
and yet we're 20 minutes from the science park. So it's been a huge boost for us. We're an international business, and we've managed to, you know, we're very close to Stansted Airport, better located than London. So we're doing better because we're in the countryside. Anything we'd like is some better cycle paths, maybe, to the village, villages where we are. Mm. Um, and automation, just to come on to that, we're already fully automated. We use computer numerical control machines to fully automate all production. But we still need skilled operators and the ideas. Sorry, do you have a question? We've got Sorry. What's the question for the panel? So it's really coming back to you that I think the worry that everything is centralised in you know, the big cities is more of a, um, uh, a trend. It's not needed. We can be outside. Okay. We can be So do we need to centralise? We don't need to centralise. Do we need to worry about centralisation? We don't need to worry about that, but we should encourage businesses to locate give them encouragement to small villages, small towns, okay. and help, help that transition. Okay, thank you. So, the first question, uh, are schools preparing people well enough for the new world? I think you probably know the answer. <laughs> and the second one is, you know, are we worrying too much about centralisation? Is it a much problem we should be encouraging firms to locate elsewhere? And uh, which might itself solve a suite of economic problems that we've talked about. Um, Alan, do you want to come back on the first? Yeah, the I, think, second I think... I think maybe, maybe, I mean, Sam did set up the divide a little bit in his speech, but I think he might probably say that the fact that you are 20 minutes away from the science park is kind of making his argument for him a little bit, because you're an example of trickle out, you're trickling out from Cambridge, but you're choosing to live not in Cambridge. Um, on, on, on the automation and preparing for children for, for the future kind of question, um, I, mean, I think I, I sort of disagreed with... with well, maybe I disagree or maybe I don't disagree with something Casey said in her speech where, you know, the, the, there, was, there was a point made that, that we can't train everyone for coding or tech. I think that's probably true, uh, but I think that's an incredibly dangerous uh, narrative for education systems to swallow because it leads to kind of poverty of low expectations. And there are, there are, there are you know, we, we work with or have worked with organizations in America that are taking some of the poorest kids in New York and turning them into to, 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 you know, to code, and, and they're funded by a social impact bond, and they make a lot of money because the, 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 the salary differentials make the economics stack up. So I think it can, you know, we, we, we all need to challenge the view that we won't be able to, challenge, uh, to, to train people for high-tech, high-skill jobs. I think when education systems swallow that, that line, however fair, it's incredibly dangerous. Okay, Casey, do you want to come back on that? Yeah, to clarify, I didn't mean that we can't train everyone to code now. Um, What I mean more is that we have to look at how fast the pace of technology is changing and that the skills that we can give people now that can help them get a job literally tomorrow will not be the same skills that they need 15 years down the line. They won't be. So what we really do need to revisit the education system and, uh, you know, totally retransform it and think about in a little bit of a philosophical way, what is the education system for? And yes, you can make an argument that it's so that we could all live good lives, but really it's to prepare us for the future world of work. And it's not doing that right now. We're talking about the skills that we need to ensure that we're giving people that are very young now that if we give them coding skills, yes, we should be teaching kids coding and the things like that. But beyond that, for the longer term future, we need to make sure that people are equipped to have lifelong learning, to be adaptable more and more into the future. And we also need to, and call on employers to um, be involved in the education system because of lifelong learning. They really do need to make sure that all of their employees are getting like training in future skills so they can adapt as well. I think, yeah, I just very, very quickly, I think I 100% agree that our education system, one of its biggest challenge is that it, it, it isn't sort of educating people with these non-cognitive skills, the personality traits, the resilience, the character, the motivation, the things that will make them more adaptable in the future. I think it's one of its other challenges, it isn't particularly good at uh, educating people for ac- actual technical skills. I think, so I think we need a bit of both. And I think, actually, if you look at the direction of travel for the UK's education system over the last five to ten years, it's gone in the complete opposite direction to the rest of the world, where it's become focused on things like, you know, grammar and new spelling tests, and that is... It, it, it's out of step and where we're actually getting left behind. 
Okay, I'm sad that we're nearly out of time, but Sam, I think, just wanted to come back on. Very briefly, um, I'm a little, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a skeptic about um, you know, using the education system to achieve any social goals. But the one thing I would do is, um, and it's based on um, some impressive empirical research, is really hammer at home for um, young people and for university students in particular what earnings they'll get from different career paths they might take. Um, it turns out a lot of young people make decisions without thinking. And I say this uh, kind of faux surprise because I did exactly the same thing um, without really thinking about the career and the life that it might lead to them. When you really ran at home and you say, if you become a data scientist, you can look at maybe £150,000 a year once you're in the prime of your career. If you become an artist, unless you're very lucky, you're looking at more like £20,000 a year or £25,000 a year. If you really ran that kind of thing home, it turns out students do take the kinds of decisions and do start to make the sorts of decisions that um, it turns out that when they're more informed they want to pick. So I would just be a little bit better with careers advice I think and uh, hope that the kind of magic of self-interest would lead more uh, young people to take on the sort of annoying, boring difficult courses that ultimately may end up being more valuable to them than the kind of fun ones that I did and uh, that perhaps many people do at the moment. So uh, follow the money I think is the big takeaway from this fringe. Um, I just want to say thank you to all of you and to all our panellists. It's been a really fascinating discussion. We haven't even raised about ten of the points I had on my sheet to raise during it. Um, but, yeah, so if we can just give a round of applause to our panellists, and uh, thank you very much. Yes. Well, thanks, guys. That was excellent. It was really... Very organic. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.